and the threat of war rage throughout the world. War brings famine, famine brings disease, and disease brings death. You've seen the heart-wrenching pictures on CNN and Fox Cable. When is all this strife going to be over? How is the final chapter of Earth going to end? This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to taking you into the biblical revelation so you can learn God's truth for yourself. Today, our study leader, Dave Wurtson, takes us to Revelation chapter 6. In this chapter, we move out of the heavenly praise of chapters 4 and 5 into the fire and smoke of warfare, famine, and death in chapter 6. Let's join Dave as he shares about one of our young men in our church here in Texas who saw some of this fire and death for himself in Sudan. Dave? I remember how high I felt when Operation Desert Storm was over. The Cold War had ended and Russia was no longer this great, great antagonist. And I remember thinking in my heart, Lord, maybe we're going to have a time of peace. Anybody join me in that? You felt like maybe there's going to be a little bit of tranquility, a little peace. As I look back over the conclusion of Desert Storm, then I move up to the present. All that I've seen is just one Warfare after another, one plague after another, one famine after another. One of our young men in our church is over in Africa right now, camped out by Lake Victoria, and he flies uh, missions into Uganda and, and up into Entebbe and different areas in Africa, and he's there to witness for the gospel as well as bring relief uh, from starvation. I got an email a couple days ago, and he described how as he was landing in these different airstrips, he told us about how as he moved among these, you know, just thousands upon thousands of Africans, as he looked upon their famished bodies and he looked upon these soldiers carrying weapons, and he talked to us about, you know, the, the terrible violence that breaks forth. As he closed that email that he wrote to us, he shared, my heart breaks because of the warfare. My heart breaks because of the famine. And you could just feel the agony of going among thousands of people who don't have enough to eat. It's because of so much warfare and then so much disease that flows from that. Because when there's war, you can't plant your crops. When there's war, it foisters disease. And that, that tremendous combination of, of warfare and then famine and disease and the brokenness begin to just plague the area of the world. And one of the things that as, I'm, as I hear of reports like that, and I have fellow believers share with me, like, how long will this go on? I begin to wonder, like, where is Jesus in the midst of all this? And that's why Revelation is so important. Because Revelation focuses us on a Savior who doesn't just give us some nice warm pillow of religion. He doesn't just ignore what's going on in the world. In other words, as we open up the page of the book of Revelation, we find all these realities. And as we open up today to Revelation chapter 6, we're coming to another major transition in the book of Revelation. In chapters 5 and 6, we were taken up into the heavenly court. It's where you're going to live if you know Christ as your Savior. And I want you to remember that in the midst of the sickness you might have to face, in the, the midst of the warfare you might have to be involved in, in the midst of the suffering, whether it's famine or emotional famine, whatever you might be going through, I want you to realize whatever you're going through, I want you to stay focused on the Lamb of God. He's at the center of Revelation 5 and 6. How many of you have ever read the book of Revelation? You say, man, I just can't understand it. Anybody ever done that? 
And you probably had some preachers. You know, I, I, I heard of a preacher that said, man, I'll be glad to teach just anywhere in the Word of God. Just don't let me teach the book of Revelation. Well, I've got some really good news for you. You're reading the book of Revelation. If you don't understand something, just focus on the Son of God. Focus on the Lamb that was slain. Worship Him, adore Him, and you're going to be into what the book is about. In other words, if you don't understand what's happening, or if you feel troubled by the bad news that's going on, go right to Jesus. Focus on Him. Worship Him. Just affirm your confidence that ultimately, when all the smoke is cleared, Jesus is going to be okay. And because you're in him, you're going to be okay, and you'll understand the book of Revelation, because that's the meaning of the book. But as we open up to Revelation chapter 6, we leave the tranquility of heaven. Not really the tranquility, but we leave the trumpets and the shouts of praise and, and the, uh, the lifting hands and worship to the King of Kings and the Lamb and the Father on the throne and the, the seven spirits being sent. We leave all of that and suddenly we're back on planet Earth again. And what the rest of the book of Revelation is going to do, chapter 6 through 19, is going to describe to us the culmination of history. And basically the major thrust is going to be how is the final chapter of life on planet Earth going to end? How is it going to unfold? What's going to happen? And what we're going to find in chapter 6 is that what Jesus told us in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, if you know the Gospels, you understand that in the last week that Jesus lived, probably on Tuesday, before he was killed on Friday, He had an intimate time with his disciples. And his disciples wanted to know, how's it all going to end? When is your kingdom going to come? When are all the promises of the Old Testament to the Jewish people going to be fulfilled? And in Matthew 24, Jesus began to outline a series of things that would be the beginning of birth pangs. You can remember some of those things from your study in Matthew 24. Let me just remind you of them. One of the things that Jesus said that as we move towards the birth pangs of the culmination, and what Jesus was saying is that just like a woman, as she begins to go into labor, the the pains become increasing, they increase in, in the difficulty of them, they increase in the frequencies of them. Jesus is saying that in the final chapters of human history, there's going to be a pulsating rhythm that begins to beat faster and faster and faster. It's like listening to a musical score where you have a crescendo begin to build and it starts out quietly, but it begins to increase in tempo. It begins to increase in rhythm. And that's the way Revelation is going to feel for the rest of our time in the book until we get to the end. Jesus said that that beating rhythm, that crescendo that was going to begin to build was first of all false Christ. He warned the disciples and he warned us as the followers of Christ that there's going to be those that claim to be the Messiah. There's going to be those that claim to be the answer. And so as we look down through church history, we do see that. As you look at church history, time and time again, you have great figures that ride forth in the stages of history, and they declare we're the answer for planet Earth. And you can trace every one of those times in human history where millions of people have, have bowed before a great deliverer that claimed to be the Messiah, and it ends in death. For example, for the Jewish people, Bar Kokhba, a man that you haven't heard of, it means the son of the star. About what, in the, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as we went through the change of the 100 years, we move into the 2nd century, 
a great Jewish leader rose up. He was known in, in the, some of the Jewish writings, but it wasn't until our day where they found his actual diaries down by the Dead Sea. There was a lot of debate over whether he was a historical figure, but today we all know that a great Jewish leader named Bar Kokhbai said, I'm the Messiah. Rabbi Akiba said, he's the Messiah. And thousands of Jews began to follow Bar Kokhbai, and they amounted another rebellion against the Roman government, just as they had in 67 A.D., And again, the Roman legions rose up, and the Jewish people believed, this is the Messiah, this is the one that will give us victory. But then they were destroyed by the thousands and scattered throughout the world, and they they didn't come back to the Holy Land until very recent times, 1948 and 49, as we have the birth of the nation of Israel in our modern times. That was a false Christ, down through history. That's just one example. But I want you to know, as Jesus talked about false Christ that would be present down through history, that would be the beginning of birth pangs. There's also the idea that in the last seven years, before the King of Kings returns, we're going to have an ultimate false Christ. The book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel asked God, he prayed fervently, said, God, show me what's going to happen to my people. Show me how this whole thing's going to end. Show me what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Show me how you're ultimately going to believe the captivity of the Jewish people and the suffering of the Jewish people to end. I want you to know that one of the great unanswered questions in human history is not only how will you as a human being be born into God's family, but what about the, the sons of Abraham? What about the physical sons of Abraham, the Jewish people that are such a mystery in human history? How is God going to resolve their questions and their agony and their hurt? And Daniel asked that question. And we have these incredible sacred words that says 70 years are declared for God's people. And Daniel is told that there's going to be 69 weeks of years. And that brings us right to the time of Jesus. Remember, Daniel 9, we studied how Daniel's 69 weeks bring us right from Nehemiah going back to rebuild the fortifications of Jerusalem, right to the time of the triumphal entry of Jesus. And then Daniel 9 said that the Messiah will be cut off. That right at the end of the 69 years, the Messiah will be cut off and he will have nothing. He will face death. And then it says the people of the prince who will come are going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. An incredible prediction. And it came true with minute objective accuracy. Right after Jesus entered Jerusalem with the triumphal entry, right at the conclusion of the 69 weeks, less than a week later, the Messiah was cut off. And the people of the prince that would come, the Roman legions, rose up. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed, just like Daniel said. But then Daniel's told to close the vision, to close the book. And we don't learn about Daniel's 70th week, the final seven-year period when God will bring the mystery of God's Jewish people to a conclusion. And what Daniel leaves unanswered, the book of Revelation's now going to wrestle with. Because Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is going to focus, in fact, is an Old Testament major As I read the next several chapters in the book of Revelation, to be honest with you, I feel like I'm right back in the midst of an Old Testament prophet. What we begin studying today sounds exactly like, if I didn't know better, I would say we're reading Ezekiel or we're reading Jeremiah. It's right back in that Old Testament context, and that's why we have trouble understanding it. 
but we can understand as we work through it. And what we're going to be wrestling with is from Revelation 6 to Revelation 19. The primary focus is going to be on the final period as the birth pangs intensify. And we're going to go through seven years of the God getting the stage of history ready for the coming of his son. And so we open up to Revelation chapter 6. And with that as a background, remembering that Jesus said one of the first signs would be false Christ. Jesus also said that a second sign would be war. That there would be all these promises of peace, and yet the world, right when everybody's talking about peace, there would be warfare that breaks out incessantly again and again and again. And thirdly, Jesus said there's going to be famines and there's going to be great starvation and plagues of death. He culminates talking about there being earthquakes and great shaking in the natural kingdom. He even talks about great cosmic, heavenly events taking place. And then the Son of Man comes. We find out that Revelation chapter 6, written by the beloved disciple John, John listened really carefully to his teacher. He listened real carefully to Jesus. And he remembered what Jesus taught him. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Revelation 6 and the developing chapters is going to give us even more detail than even Jesus himself gave in his earthly life in Matthew 24. And it will help you to understand Revelation chapter 6 through 19 if you read the shortened paraphrased version that Jesus gave in Matthew 24. Let's look at it beginning with Revelation 6 verse 1. I watched as the Lamb. What did I tell you? If you don't understand Revelation, who do you watch? Watch the Lamb. Don't ever get in a crowd and get down on your face and worship or stand up and shout, oh, this is awesome, this is unbelievable. Don't give that allegiance of your heart, that ultimate allegiance of your heart. Don't give to anyone. As Americans, we can just take it for granted, but we need to watch the Lamb. We need to worship the Lamb. And John's watching the Lamb. That's why he understands what's going to happen. He says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Only Jesus can open this book of destiny. And as Jesus opens the first seal, then I heard one of the four living creatures. Remember, those are the archangels that are the four closest angelic rulers right around the throne of God. He heard one of the living creatures saying a voice like thunder. Just like when a thunderstorm in Texas begins, it's coming down from Oklahoma or down from Wichita Falls in Amarillo, and we hear the distant thunder. Believers have even made movies and, and written books on the distant thunder. What's that mean? When we hear thunder, we know that a storm is coming. So the angel, we hear this distant thunder as the angel makes his great announcement. And he says, come. He says, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And we have to ask ourselves, who is this rider on the white horse? And the great debate is taking place down through church history. Because when we get to Revelation chapter 19, we have a rider on a white horse. And he is given many diadems. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has on his vesture a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. He rides forth as the conquering general. He conquers Antichrist. He conquers the dragon, Satan. And he wins a victory. So we would automatically think it must be the rider on the white horse must be Jesus. And so that's been one of the interpretations. The problem with that view is that as we move through this chapter... We find it as this rider rides forth to conquer. And the four horsemen 
not the four horsemen of Notre Dame, but the four horsemen of Revelation 6, are connected. They flow one into the other. And we have them moving. The first white horse is going to generate what comes in the fiery red horse, the second horse. And so if we interpret this horseman being Jesus, then what he initiates is a sequence of horrible bloodshed, of horrible human illness, of horrible death and destruction. And that's not the Jesus that I know. That's not the Jesus that invaded human history. When Jesus rode forth on the pages of human history the first time, he does not come riding forth as a great conquering general, which is the symbol of the white horse. Whether it's Julius Caesar or Napoleon, they all ride on this this gallant white horse. Even Robert E. Lee rode on a white horse. It's the sign of a conquering general. Our Savior in his first coming comes not as a conquering Roman general under that symbol. Remember Revelation presenting holy political cartoons to us. So the picture is of this, this individual riding forth like a great Roman Julius Caesar that's riding forth to conquer. In the first coming of Jesus, that's not the way that he came. What did he ride in his first coming? Everybody tell me. Not a conquering white stallion, but he rode just an old donkey. Man, that's, you know, that's not too exciting, is it? That's a totally different kind of a ruler. And that's the way Jesus is working. Jesus is not going to come and just beat you to your knees. Instead, he'll even let you walk out of here, rebelling against him, wandering against him, wandering away from him. And he'll gently call you. He'll gently call you back. And many of you, how many of you have experienced the sweet, gentle calling of Jesus even over the past week? And how many of you would testify in your own life? He doesn't, he does, he does overwhelm you, but he overwhelms you with joy, doesn't he? He doesn't overwhelm you with just force and power and manipulation. Satan does that to you, but not Jesus. In his first coming, Jesus doesn't come as the great conquering general. And so that's another reason why I don't believe that this white horseman is Jesus. And I don't think that John is describing the advent of Christianity into the human kingdom of the world back in the first century. Another reason I don't hold that the white horseman is Jesus, it would be very unusual in the symbolism for Jesus, the lamb that's standing as if he was slain, taking the sealed book, opening the first seal, and for him to be the first thing that's revealed. It's just not the way that, it's not skillful writing. It's not the way an artist would present things. In other words, Jesus is presented as the one that's controlling these events these people that ride forth or these causes or these situations that rise forth, that ride forth in human history, but he is not presented as being equal to one of these seven seals. That's another reason why I don't believe that Jesus is the rider on the white horse. So who is this person? Who would it be that a lot of people confuse as being the Messiah? And if we think of Matthew 24, what did Jesus say would be one of the very first things, the beginning of birth pangs, especially during the final seven years, one of the very first things would be false Christ, the rider on the white horse. And that's why there's been so confusion about this rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6. Because he looks like Jesus. He looks like the Messiah. You live in a day where Jesus is used in a very powerful way to stand for the embodiment of all that's religiously good, all that's moral. Tell me you have ever had a friend say, man, I think it's great that you believe in Jesus. I believe in the force, but man, I think it's great that you believe in Jesus. Anybody ever heard stuff like that? 
Everything's great. Everything's great. That's a false Christ. There's no statement of the absolute power of Jesus. No statement of his absolute hold over planet Earth. No statement of his king of kings and lord of lords. Just, Jesus just is one among many great leaders and great religious thinkers and great causes. We live in a day where false Christs are all around us. We live in a day where one person after another says, I'm in the name of Jesus and I'm the one that represents him. So we live in that day already. But I believe as the tribulation period begins... That it begins, according to Revelation 9, with the Antichrist signing a covenant with Israel. And the first three and a half years is a time of false Christ. Antichrist is able to beat back all the other opponents. Everybody else seeking to get control over planet Earth. How many of you have ever heard, just over the last several months, calls to world union and world government and world economics? Anybody heard any talk like that? Just listen to the intellectuals. The intellectuals say we're entering a period of a world community, world communication. That's going to intensify. Well, if you think through the logical outcome of all that kind of thinking is we need to have a world ruler. We need to have a world government. And the Bible predicts that as the tribulation period begins, a great Western leader will rise up. And he's going to ride forth in the pages of history and he's going to look like a Christ, a Messiah. He's going to ride forth, and, he, and it's interesting, he has a bow in his hand. No arrows, just a bow. And a bow in the ancient world stands for the power to conquer. It stands for the right to rule. And this Messiah, this false Messiah that rides forth, has no arrows. So that in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, I believe it's a symbol of things are relatively peaceful. The Antichrist is not going to rise to power initially through the force of his armies, through the force of his military might. He's going to arise, like Daniel tells us, by intrigue, by his brilliant speaking ability, by his brilliant intellectual ability, and he rides forth with a bow in his hand. He's overcoming things, he's conquering things, but not by bloodshed, but instead it's by manipulation and intrigue and cunning. And so we have, I believe, that the first evidence as the tribulation period begins, Jesus is saying that there's this rider on the white horse that rides forth with a bow. He's given a crown, so he's given a governmental authority. And he rides forth as a conqueror bent on conquering. Down through history, we were introduced to Nimrod way back in the early chapters of Genesis. And Nimrod rides forth to conquer and to conquer. And what it's saying is that there's a lust in the human being to rule planet Earth. Now, Jesus initially created us. God the Father created us. The Spirit created us to be his vice regents over planet Earth. As human beings, we were created to, to govern planet Earth. But in Genesis chapter 3, we sinned. And all of the human race sinned in Adam. And all of us have the seeds of Adam in our heart. And that's why absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's why none of us outside of Christ have the right to rule. And I want you to think really clearly about this. If you try to rule your own life, you'll destroy it. If you try to seize the rule of your whole family as a husband and try to do it all your own way and not bow in submission to Christ, you'll ruin it. If you've got to control your business, you don't submit it to Christ. You don't ask him for wisdom and direction. You just try to do it your own way. If you try to rule it without being bowing in submission to Christ, you'll destroy it. It's the plague of human existence. Down through history, we eliminate Jesus. 
We eliminate the promised one. We say we're going to all get together. We're going to use our ingenuity. We're going to use our planning. And we're going to get it together. I have it in my own heart. You've got it in your heart. And every time you divorce yourself from Jesus, every time you lean upon your own strength and you begin to conquer and to be conquered, you begin a whole sequence of hurting and destroying And Antichrist is only the culmination of what Satan's been doing for century after century after century. Satan creates an individual that says, I don't need the true God. Human ingenuity can do it. I don't need his Messiah. I don't need the lamb that's standing as if he was slain. I think it's it's ludicrous to think of, of God giving his son to die on the cross. Man, millions of people got crucified on the cross in the Roman times. What's the big deal about one, another Jewish carpenter's son that gets nail print in his hand? Spartacus died like that. And then they lined the, the streets of Jerusalem when they destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 7 AD. And man, they just lined the roads of Jerusalem with, with men on trees and women on trees. And they even used them as torches in Rome. What's the big deal about a crucifixion? And that secular thinking that totally doesn't understand that, man, God's the one that's on the throne. God decides how my sins will be forgiven and how your sins will be forgiven. And I'm committed to the objective reality that God, the ultimate being in all the universe, said when his precious son died historically on the cross, that paid the penalty for my sin. It objectively paid the price. And if I trust in that, my sins are cleansed whiter than snow. The false antichrist says that you don't need that. We can conquer in our own strength. We can overcome through our own self-help. We can conquer through our own technology. And on and on it goes. The Antichrist rides forth. But what does he produce? Now, you can see this pattern in human history because I believe that God's like a great author. When a great novelist is writing and they tell you the beginning of the story and as the story develops, they don't just hit you in the climax with stuff that was totally unheard of. You you never heard this kind of thing happen before. What makes a really good storyteller good is that they keep building the essence of the story. They give you little pictures of it early in the story. And that's what God does in human history. In other words, there has been false Christs just as Daniel predicted, just as Jesus predicted. But there's going to be an ultimate false Christ during the last seven years of life before Jesus comes, and that's going to be the Antichrist. And he's going to look like he's bringing in and ushering a period of world peace, but what does he produce? Look at the second seal as the Son of God opens that. Look at verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard... The second living creature, again, one of the mighty archangels around the throne of God, telling us that this control, the the ultimate story that's being written, is being controlled by the throne room of God, which gives me great comfort. And this second living creature says, ride forth, come. The word come means, okay, ride forth. And he says, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given the power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. If he was given the right to take peace from the earth, then it would mean that we had had a period of peace, which explains to us how the first rider conquered not through warfare, but by the promise of peace. But the, the human promise of peace crashes. Whenever you hear, like young people, there's going to be politicians that promise you, man, if you'll elect me, if you'll follow me, if you'll go and hand out bulletins in my name, I'm going to bring peace. I'll bring prosperity. 
Man, you need to get involved with me. I'm going to bring happiness and peace on earth, peace for the United States. Don't you ever believe it? If you have somebody stand up and say, I want you to know I'm going to do the best that I can do, and I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be just, I'm going to try to make sure the courts are what they need to be, I'm going to try to take care of those that are in need legitimately and really care for the poor, and I'm going to be really careful to make sure your taxes are spent the way they are, but I want you to know that I can't take away the economics ups and downs, and, and I don't know whether I can protect our nation from, from attacks from outside, and our military is going to have to be ready, because who knows when there's going to be war breaking forth, and, and I'm going to be dependent upon the ultimate God that I, that I bow before. I'm going to do the best I can. If somebody talks to you like that, vote for them. They never will, probably, but if they do, that's honest. If I ever hear a politician talking like that, I'm going I'm to go up and give him a big hug. Because that's the truth. In my 49 years, almost 50 years of existence, man, that's the life. That's really what happens. I've heard one person after another promise me, man, I'll give you peace. This is the new day. Man, I remember going to the New York World's Fair. And man, I remember the little kids sitting there, and they had all these automatic figures, these robots, and they go around this wheel, these incredible animated figure. And man, I just was enamored by it. I can still remember one animated figure after after another said, "There's a great big beautiful tomorrow waiting at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow is just a step away." Doesn't that make you feel great? I feel like going to Disneyland already. It's a lie. There's going to be a real dark thunderstorm before we get to the beautiful tomorrow. And without the Son of God, you'll never get to a beautiful tomorrow. Please hear me. Don't rely upon your strength. Don't rely upon yourself. You're going to believe in a false rider, a white horseman, who looks like he promises you everything. And I want it just by application. I want you to know, listen... Dear, dear woman, your white horseman right now, your false Christ might be that man that you say will make you feel alive, but he's not the one Jesus wants for you. Don't believe that white horseman will save you and give you peace. That's the way you can apply it. You see, we all wrestle with the spirit of believing in white horsemen that are not the true Christ. I want you to know from the depths of my heart, as you, as you live this life, there's only one white horseman that can meet your needs. There's only one white horseman that can take you through. And he's the precious son of God, Jesus, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what Satan's going to ultimately do in the stages of history, he's already cranking up, doing in our lives day by day. And we need to be careful not to be seduced by the false riders on the white horse. Because what are they going to produce? They're going to produce a fiery red horse, which is bloodshed. Look what it says here. Look what happens. It says that the fiery red horse rides forth and he has power to take peace from the earth. The Antichrist, false peace, comes crashing down. And he makes men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. I wish that wasn't true. Because I hate the fact of the bloodshed. And our Father in heaven hates it too. And in heaven, one day, when Jesus comes, there's going to be no longer any bloodshed. We can praise God for that. But Judd wrote me, I go into these areas, and man has risen up against men. They've taken machetes. And they went into compounds with just, just a thousand men, no men, just women and children. They went into machetes and just hacked the bodies to pieces. No mercy. Mothers, pregnant mothers, just hacked them. 
just mowed him down in a, in a series of minutes. How could man ever do that? How could man, even beasts don't do that? And it showed you the depth of what we're wrestling with and the evil that's in our heart. And you see, if this is happening in the world today, I didn't make up that story. That, that's what's happening in Africa. Men rising up against other men, women and children, just destroying them and the blood flows. And Jesus is saying that ultimately he's the one that opens that book. It's part of his story. It's not his heart. But I'm just so thankful that I can know that as all of this horrible violence breaks forth on planet Earth, as the tribulation unfolds, there will be bloodshed like the world has never seen. And yet the book of Revelation is promising us that ultimately the Lamb of God is the one that holds the book. Amen? Boy, I'm so thankful for that. Because it's a reality of human existence. You can't deny it. And Jesus promises us how ultimately he's going to bring about justice. Ultimately, he promises, I'm going to deal with all this men rising up against mankind and destroying one another. I'm going to deal with all that bloodshed. There's going to be justice. And we need to worship him because of that. Then we have the next seal opening up. The lamb opened up the third seal. And I heard the third living creature saying, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was handed a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. But do not damage the oil and the wine. Whenever there's war, why isn't there enough food? Why are millions and millions of people on the edge of starvation? Why are little babies dying one after another? It's because of warfare. In fact, a lot of times they even have, they're ready to fly the supplies in, but the military governments that are in, in control won't let them bring the food to the people that need it. So that sequence, if you think of it, some of you that are older that, that were in Europe during World War II or in the South Pacific during World War II, you could stand up right now and tell it's true. When there's warfare, you can't plant your crops the, the men that need to plow the fields aren't present to be able to do it. Instead, they're killing one another. Women and children are killed. No one plants the crops, so therefore there's not enough food. Therefore, famine and starvation flow from that. And that's what the Bible's declaring. See, Antichrist during the first three and a half years promises us peace on earth. Not us. I believe we're going to be in heaven because of Revelation 3.10. Those that believe in Christ in the church age, I believe, will be taken up. But as the world experiences this great tribulation, there's three and a half years of peace. But then things come unraveled, like human peace always does. War breaks forth. There's anarchy. There's rebellion. There's civil war. All that kind of craziness. And then there's famine, and disease flows from famine. Why? Because when there's famine, there's weakness, and disease flows from that. Just what it's saying here. In that final three and a half years, these sealed judgments are kind of like giving us an overview of the progression of intensifying destruction that begins to take place on planet Earth because man is saying, I'm in control and I reject the king of kings. The idea of a quart of wheat being a day's of wage. All of you men and women that go out and work this week, think about how much you make in a day. There was a day, man, I, I could work and I, I had four, Jonathan, Joel, Joshua, and Janae. We could all have enough to eat. How many of you have not had enough to eat this week? Some of you that are on diets would raise your hand, but most of you are struggling. Say, I'm just doing fine. Imagine a day where a man or woman works all day long and they can only buy enough to feed one person. That's what it's saying. It's saying you work all day long and a day of work only gets a man barely enough. Just one quart of wheat, which is like a, a less, it's like a big bowl of Cheerios. 
And if you can't spend ex- for expensive Cheerios, then you got to buy the cheaper non-brand cereal, the barley stuff, and you could have three bowls of that. That's not too much. But it says something interesting. It said, but the oil and the wine is not going to be touched, which in the ancient world was part of the normal grocery list that you would get. In fact, it's still true when I go to Israel, oil and wine are just part of, you know, what's there on the table. You take bread, and like the Italian, you know, take good bread and put it in the olive oil. Man, it, it tastes great. So oil and wine were normal parts of their grocery list. Proverbs, though, tells us that don't love oil and wine too much. And it uses it in Proverbs 27 of the idea of luxuries. And there might be a little bit of feel here, and it's, it's a true reality of when there's famine. When there's a light famine, not a total famine, but a light famine where people are barely getting enough to eat. You know who gets plenty to eat? The rich. It's amazing. The luxuries will continue. A businessman told me this week, said, you know, as I listen to the business forecasts, more and more the rich with technology, like I think of the computers that I use, and the computers that you use, and the knowledge of that, you see that the technology becomes so quick, so quick, that if you're into the technology, you become more and more successful. But if you don't have availability, if you don't have the computer, you don't have that information, you don't have that equipment, then all the middle jobs, this businessman was saying that all the jobs, the menial jobs, the hard work, it's no longer there anymore. So now you're developing a culture where there's a really rich and there's really poor. When I go to South America, there are really rich people, people that have riches that I would never dream of having. But man, the majority of the population, as I move through the Brazilian population, the majority don't even have substance. They don't even have enough to get by in a day. Great disparity. One of the great gifts of our land has been this tremendous middle ground that's been present in, in a powerful way like it's never been in history. During the tribulation period, that spread is going to increase. And when that spread gets really great, when you have all the wealth centered into an elite, luxury-loving class and millions down here in the poor class, what do you think is going to happen? Bloodshed and strife and warfare breaks forth as these millions down here grab what's up there. In the tribulation period, this seal is saying that that's what's going to happen as the civilization of planet Earth begins to come unraveled. Then we have our fourth and final seal we'll be able to look at today, the fourth horseman. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And there was given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. What's it saying there? The famines are breaking forth. The warfare is breaking forth. It's saying that disease and death begin to grab a hold, and a plague on planet earth takes place. A fourth of the population of planet earth today would be a billion and a half people. A billion and a half people that die. That's one of the reasons why I know that this is in the Great Tribulation period and not a historical interpretation about something that's already taken place. There's never been a time in human history where a fourth of planet Earth since the time of Christ was subjugated to death and destruction. So the Bible's predicting, Jesus is saying there's going to come a time on planet Earth. And I want to share with you, This isn't my story. This isn't what I wrote. In fact, I would never preach to you like I'm preaching you today. 
If I relied upon my own wisdom, I would tell you there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Ask Mary. I think there's always a beautiful tomorrow. And I'm always optimistic and always up. And I deny evil. And I deny the reality of lying. And I just think everything's honky-dory. I mean, if it wasn't for Mary, I would have been totally in the hooskow somewhere because I would have been deceived by a million and one things. Because I'm an optimist. So I wouldn't preach it like I am. But revelation is realistic. If you think about human history, we've seen little drumbeats that indicate what I've taught you today. What I've told you is that it's the drumbeats are going to intensify and beat out stronger during the tribulation period. But I praise God because the scripture says that the Lamb of God is the one that's holding the seals. You think of a billion and a half people dying and being subjugated to death. That just breaks my heart. That's like the whole population of the United States being wiped out. The whole population of South America being wiped out, just like that. A fourth of the world. We're going to find as Revelation intensifies. Then it's a third of the population of the world. And then finally, the whole planet is engulfed in flames and destruction as the judgment of God breaks forth. But you know what? That would scare the you-know-what out of me. And I hope it does. I hope that you're scared because the reality is, you know, like a billion and a half people die. What does that mean? What about you dying? You see, that's the one that's going to count for you. And that scares me. Death scares me. But you know what I do? I grab a hold of the lamb that was slain. You know what? Death and Hades holding the lamb that was slain. My lamb of God, my white horseman, already went into death and Hades. He already paid the penalty for my sin. He already conquered that stuff. He's got a hold of me. And he's going to take me safely through. In fact, I believe that at this time, because of my faith in him, I'll be looking down around the throne, letting him write his story, and you and I are going to be praising the King of Kings as the story of planet Earth unfolds. But I believe, because he died for me, because he rose again for me, and with my children that have put their faith in that same resurrected Savior, I believe that death and Hades won't have any hold over me. Instead, there will be life. So we don't want to scare you. I want you to come and know the Son of God. I want you to face the way things are realistically. As I grow older in the book of Revelation, one of the things I thank the Lord so deeply for is that it's true. It, I can read the New York Times and I can read Revelation and, and it fits together. It's the way life really is. And it's telling me about an ultimate culmination, but it also tells me that the Lamb is holding the sealed book. But what I want you to get from today is the four horsemen ride forth, Antichrist, and then the anarchy that flows when his peace comes unraveled, the disease that flows and the famine that flows when, the, when his peace comes unraveled, and then the destruction of the fourth of planet Earth, which is going to even intensify. And we're talking about that seven-year period where the judgments of planet Earth begin to all come down. But if you have a hold of the Lamb of God, and I believe that even during that period, there are going to be millions that make the choice. I'm going to believe in the lamb that was slain and not believe in Antichrist. Many of them will die for their faith, but they're still going to be safe because our Savior has conquered death and Hades. He's already won the victory. Father, we thank you so much that you control the four horsemen. We're thankful that you've conquered sin and death and destruction. We're thankful that we can read about the great tribulation period, but that we can know as part of the church that we will be kept in a safe place out of this time of Jacob's trouble. But we can also know that those that are living through it, as you begin to shake 
the planet again and begin to reach out to your Jewish people again. We can know that those that trust in the Messiah, the true Messiah, will be safe in your arms, even in the midst of all this horror and destruction. There can still be found peace and safety in the name and in the arms of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.